You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I do not believe in the court system. At least I do not think it's especially good at finding the truth. No lawyer does. We've all seen too many mistakes, too many bad results. A jury verdict is just a guess, a well-intentioned guess generally, but you simply can't tell fact from fiction by taking a vote. And yet, despite all that, I do believe in the power of the ritual. I believe in the religious symbolism, the black robes, the marble-columned courthouses like Greek temples. When we hold a trial, we're saying a mass. We are praying together to do what is right and to be protected from danger. And that is worth doing whether or not our prayers are actually heard. William Landay is the author of The Strangler and Mission Flats, which won the Creasy Memorial Dagger Award for the best first crime novel. He's a former district attorney. His new novel is Defending Jacob. Thank you for joining me, William. Thank you. Happy to be here. This is a very interesting novel. One of the things that we get right from the outset is that we're seeing this through the eyes of a district attorney, and this is not the usual uh, uh, perceptive uh, viewpoint in crime fiction. Uh, DAs have a really uh, different perception from a defense lawyer, from a defendant, from somebody who's committed a crime, from a detective, and from the police. So I'd like you to just talk about that, and based on your own experience as a DA, about how DAs see the world and the people they are forced to work with every single day of their working lives. Sure, sure. The narrator of this story is Andy Barber, uh, who is an assistant district attorney in the Boston area in uh, Middlesex County, which is right outside Boston, and which is where I was an assistant DA for most of the 1990s. Andy is what's called the first assistant, which means he's the top prosecutor uh, just below the elected official, the district attorney herself. That can mean different things in different offices. Sometimes it's, it's mostly a political handler. But in this case, Andy is the master trial lawyer in the office. He's the top gun he handles all the, the most complicated and high-profile cases. He's the guy who gets the cases that need to go right. He's a 27-year veteran of the system. And that gives him a long perspective on criminal justice. And I wouldn't say that he's cynical about, uh, about the system, although he is well aware of its limitations. He's well aware of how unscientific the system is, the idea of turning over the ultimate fact-finding function to a jury made up of laymen who are chosen precisely for their lack of expertise in making just this decision. He understands the, the irony and the perversity of that uh, after thousands of years of, of trying to, to get it right uh, in, in our court system. It's actually kind of amazing that at this point, so late in the development of, of the law, that we still are using this, this very primitive system of taking a vote, of just guessing among 12 people. Uh, so Andy is not blind to the faults in the system, and yet he really respects the law. He's a guy who comes from a troubled background, but he has found a home in the law, and he's found a way to, to try and make things right and to, to try and be good. Uh, and 
he's a guy who who really does want to do the right thing and that comes through in his narration of the story there is a, a second layer of complexity in Andy's narrating the story and that is that he's telling the story as he testifies before a grand jury and so he it's he's telling the story as he's being interrogated about this entire chain of events uh, that he's telling you about and so he's weighing his words as he speaks and we cut in and out of his testimony but always hear the story through uh, through his voice and we see the story through his eyes so there's a lot going on in Andy's narration of the story. And personally, I love stories like that. I love where the, the storytelling is as complex as the story itself and where the structure of the book adds to the interest. People often think of The Usual Suspects as, as a movie where the, the, uh, the narrator himself is a part of the story, is built into the story and is seen on screen. And there's something of that self-reflexive complexity in in the storytelling here. Now, one of the things that interests me about all crime fiction, and in particular court story narratives, is the importance of story to the court process itself. And one of the things you have uh, Andy thinks about is that these, uh, in order to, the truth really doesn't matter. What matters is getting a good story. Now, this involves a crime in a suburban, a small suburban neighborhood and a part of that uh, the the feel of the American suburbs permeates this novel and is acts as it kind of boils up through all the the stories that's where all the stories in this novel come from so I'd like you to talk about using the crime story narrative and the courtroom narrative to explore the mores and the oddities and the the strange kind of uh, self-absorption of the suburbs well I think that the storytelling aspect of being a trial lawyer is one reason we have so many lawyers who become novelists. When you stand up in front of a jury, one thing you are always doing is telling a story. And, you know, one thing that lawyers say is that the best story wins. And when you, when you are trained in, in presenting to a jury, uh, one, another phrase that you hear is the theory of the case. And that's, you know, when you have this grab bag of facts to to connect and to to turn into a story your theory of the case is the story that you believe happened and one thing that happens as you investigate a case and as you move from a set of random clues to a theory to a jury presentation is the the story that you come to takes on a level of certainty that it wouldn't have at the beginning at the beginning it truly is a theory but the longer you live with it, the more certain it becomes. And so, you know, one thing that Andy Barber, our narrator in Defending Jacob, is, is very aware of is the proneness, uh, uh, the likelihood that human beings will, uh, uh, will come to wrong conclusions and will increasingly convince themselves, uh, can become increasingly certain that their theory is fact. So that's one aspect of the uh, of the criminal trial. Let's talk a little bit about the characters we meet right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's Andy and, and uh, Le Judas. <laughs> Neil Le Judas, yes. Le Judas. <laughs> no, not I tried to make the name as difficult to pronounce as possible. Well, I think that Breaking there's... every rule of writing. <laughs> well, I, I really like these two characters, and there's... 
one of the things we this novel starts out with dialogue. Dialogue is really important, and dialogue is part of the trial transcript is important. So talk about uh, creating these characters. How much of the actual plot of this novel did you know um, going in, and how much of this came out of these the characters, particularly Neil Lojudis, who's just such a great, great character? Uh, yeah, Neil is Neil is kind of an a, a uh, up and coming lawyer who he's a piece of work he's a piece of work he's an operator he's machiavellian he's untrustworthy he's just an oily nasty guy and he has an incentive to remove andy from the chain of command because he has political aspirations himself and so there's some suggestion that uh, as he uh, prosecutes andy barber's son for this murder Jacob Barber, Andy's son, is accused of murdering a classmate. Jacob is a 14-year-old boy who's accused of the stabbing death of, of, of another boy at his school. And as, as Neil LeJudas prosecutes that case, there's some suggestion that he's doing that in order to earn his stripes so that he can himself run for district attorney. So, you know, as far as the dialogue goes, I felt like it was important, first of all, to keep changing the tone as you tell the story. Uh, it's important that the reader, you know, in any good storytelling experience, in any good dramatic experience, there's lots of changes of pace and of tone so that you, as you're led through the story, you, you don't know what to expect as you, as you keep turning those pages. You know, I, I've always believed that the basic bargain between writer and reader is you give me eight or ten hours of your time and I'll give you reason to keep turning those pages. And changing the tone of it and moving from dialogue passages into more prosy, uh, text-rich passages is, is part of that. There's also the, uh, the sense that, you know, this is a, for lawyers who work in courthouses, you know, this is a verbal profession. And communicating, the difficulties of communicating are part and parcel of what lawyers do. And of course, the other aspect of this story is it's really about the Barber family. Mm. It's about this family that's going through this crisis, and the family is composed of uh, Andy, who's the father, uh, Lori Barber, who's his wife, and their 14-year-old son, Jacob, who's accused of this murder. And part of what we see and uh, are called upon to think about is how difficult it is for any of us to know even the people who are closest to us in our family. In this case, it's difficult for spouses to really know each other, and it's difficult for parents to know their children. And, you know, any spouse, any parent, anyone who's ever been in a meaningful relationship will know that feeling of looking at the other person and thinking, you know, what's really going on in your head? Other people are always a mystery to us. It's very hard to truly connect with them simply through talking, through dialogue. And a lot of that uh, misconnection is something that you, you get at in, uh, in Defending Jacob. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about this as a novel of the American suburbs, because I think you do a great job of painting this uh, the picture of Newton as this quiet suburb yeah. and the way people treat one another in the aftermath of a crime. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, Newton is the town where I live, so it's, uh, I can't exactly say this was a real burst of creativity. And Ooh, you said it in your own town. <laughs> Boy, that's daring. I said it in the office where I used to work, and I said it in the town where I live now. In fact, the park where the murder takes place, the 
the basic facts of the crime is a 14-year-old boy is found murdered in this park where the boys, uh, where school children cut through to get to their school uh, through a path in the woods. Um, and that park exists. It's only a few blocks from my house. So, um, so that's all very uh, true to life. I think the point isn't so much that there's something especially distinctive about the suburbs in this case. That's where the book is set, but I think it could easily have been set in the city or in the country. I, I think it's more about human nature, and it's about how we as communities react to these criminals among us. This is an ordinary boy who's very much an insider in this community who becomes a pariah, as does his whole family, when he's accused of this crime. And, you know, I really wanted to think about how defendants are perceived in our society. Often in these stories, you hear this, the story told from the victim's point of view. But from the defendant's point of view, you know, there are parents and cousins and friends there who are affected by these crimes as well. They're was, victims yeah. of, of the, in their own, in a different sense, and they're very real victims. They certainly are, and they're, you know, they are ostracized, and they are stigmatized in much the same way that the defendant himself is. And even a, an innocent defendant, a defendant who's ultimately exonerated, still carries that taint of the accusation. So it's a very difficult position to be in. And in some ways, in social terms at least, it's more difficult than the, the victim's position because, of course, the victim is innocent. There's no condemnation of the victim. And in fact, in our society, you see people rushing to claim that mantle of victim in any dispute. Nobody is rushing to claim the victim, <laughs> uh, to claim the position of the guy who did it, you know? So to be a parent in this, in this situation and to see your child and your family thrust into that position and really be put in the position of having to watch it happen helplessly is incredibly difficult. We, you know, defendants, parents, and families are often instructed, you know, not to lash out, not to show emotion, not to do anything that would impact the case adversely. And so they're called upon to sit in the courtroom with a poker face and watch as loved ones go through this incredibly difficult trial it must be a, an, a, an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, this novel has an interesting um, plot structure and arc. I mean, there are, essentially there's three kinds of plots here. There's a plot of what happens. There's a plot of what we know and what is revealed to us. And then there's an emotional arc. Uh, in this book, and they're all really powerful. That's all really exciting. Uh, it, we talked about uh, being worth your valuable reading time. This is a novel that is definitely worth uh, one's valuable reading time because it satisfies on all those different levels, and they're nicely orchestrated. As a writer, how do you map this out? Do you just start up word one and and uh, art write your way through, or do you um, outline, or do you how do you uh, do you have a spreadsheet i can see you can do a spreadsheet card <laughs> uh no I, I don't know too many writers who are good with spreadsheets i'm a fanatical outliner i think in a book that has a complex structure like this you really need to have a plan the other thing is personally as a reader i don't like those books where for the first 50 or 100 pages you can feel the writer searching around for the story and he only gets traction midway through the book 
I like that feeling when I open a book that on the first page, there's a sense of sureness and a sense of, I can trust this storyteller. I'm in good hands. I can sit back and enjoy the story without worrying that he's going to lose a thread or he's going to do something that that will lose my confidence further down the road. And I want readers to to have that sense in my own books, that from page one, they're in good hands. That really requires knowing where you're going from page one. And so I'm a fanatical outliner. Uh, as you go, of course, the story morphs and changes. And so your outlines are constantly being mooted. And so you you have to re-outline and then re-outline again as you go. Generally, I stop every 100 pages or so to figure out where I am and just to make sure that I haven't gone too far off course. One of the, the there are many pleasures of reading this book. And one of the pleasures is uh, Andy's uh, narrative voice. We, we see him at first, and because he's speaking to us and because he's a DA, mm -hmm. we like him and trust him. And, and even though we find out from the get-go, he's under some kind of clout. But as time goes by, we realize that Andy may not be the most reliable of people to tell us this story. And I think that's yeah. one of the real pleasures of this book is when we start questioning the man who is telling us the story. Yes, and I personally, I love stories like that. I love stories that are, you know, that have a puzzling feel to them and that you don't know at any point in the story, you know, what you can trust and what you can't trust. Andy, to me, is a very likable guy. He's smart. He's funny. He knows this criminal justice system inside and out. And so he's a knowledgeable guide as he leads you through this story. And he's very frank with his opinions. He gives you an insider's view, and he's, you know, not weighing his words. Because in some senses, he feels that, you know, this system has ruined his family. And, you know, he has no longer has an, a vested interest in in defending it. So he makes a good guide, and he's he's also a very good father. I mean, the one of the dramatic questions that powers this novel is, how far would you go to protect your children? You know, what would you do even if you thought your child was wrong, even if you thought your child was dangerous, even if you, th even if you thought he posed a risk to other people? Would you continue to defend your children? I have two little kids at home. I have two boys who are eight and 10 years old. And I always hear people in my social circle, my fellow parents saying, oh, I would do anything for my child. I would lay down my life for my child. I would never abandon my child. And we hope that none of them will ever be put to the test. And we say this very blithely, and I've said it myself, and we say it in good faith. We, we mean it. But at some point, your ethical obligation, your moral obligation to do the right thing means not defending your child. And so as we follow this story, the screw is tightened and tightened, and this family is, these parents are really put to the test. And one of the interesting dynamics of the story is the two parents don't necessarily agree. As a result of their own personal histories and their own personalities, they react differently to this stress. And so the reaction of this marriage and of these two people uh, to this situation is part of the background of the story. It's part of the emotional arc of the story, not just what will happen to Jacob, but what will happen to this marriage, to this couple, these ordinary people that we know and, and are rooting for and we really like.
uh, and we do like them, and it's an, and it's a well-drawn marriage, and I love how uh, Lori, that's his wife, how her hair becomes increasingly frazzled yeah. as, as the yeah. trial goes on. Yeah. And, and she I think ages that, 10 years in the course of a few months. <laughs> and I think that this is an interesting uh, portrayal of a marriage because, as you say, these people don't agree, and, and as you are uh, creating this family, how much of this um, was in your mind again, in advance, and, and talk about just creating the the revelations of who this family are as a plot driver, because I think that's one of the things that drives the plot that keeps us turning, is to figure out who these people are and how they will react as things get more and more dire. Well, I think as a writer, you know the big through line. You know where you're headed. You know generally how these characters are going to react because you have to know where to take them. What's always surprising and happens organically in the moment of writing is the specifics. It's the actual words that come out of their mouths. It's the the little gestures, the little positions they take, the way they move around the room. Those things happen in the moment and and they do surprise you. So it's a little of both. I try to uh, yeah, I said earlier that I'm a fanatical outliner, and that's true. But the reason I outline is so that when I'm writing, I can let it go. I don't have to have in the back of my mind, oh, I need to hit X, Y, and Z plot points in this scene in order to keep it moving. I want to be there with those characters so that they can behave in a human, uh, spontaneous way. I want every scene to feel alive like that and not as if it's been planned and engineered. You know, this has to be, a story has to live in the moment. And I, one powerful thing about novels is, you know, when you pick up a book, it's 500 pages of markings, of little squiggly lines on a page. And the reader is called upon to enact the story himself, to activate it, and to make that story take place inside her own head. And that is an incredibly powerful uh, medium. It's an incredibly powerful way to tell stories. And if the story is written in the right way, if it was happening in the moment organically as you write, then it will have the same life when the reader pulls it up off the page and activates that story again. Well, that's great. That's an interesting. That's exactly what interests me is the is the reading experience, which I think is has no analog. It's very very different from movie going. Although books are often made into movies or TV series, there are, it's a really really different experience. I think more powerful by virtue of the fact that readers participate in it. That yes. we put all our effort into it. Well, one thing they say about about movies and about stage plays as well is because it's a visual medium you are necessarily outside the character's head. You are looking at this scene from across the room. The power of novels is they take place inside the reader's consciousness. You can actually assume the character's point of view. You can slip into someone else's shoes and walk around in their world and see what it's like to be another person. There was a, a great essay by Ian McEwan after 9-11 in which people were saying at the time, who cares about art? Who cares about novels? In the face of this sort of destruction, art is irrelevant. And the point that he made was, this is the time we especially need art, because novels in particular teach us to empathize. They teach us to see things from other people's perspective, and that's the foundation of 
morality. If the people who uh, flew those planes into the World Trade Center had been able to empathize with the people who were inside those buildings, they wouldn't have been able to do it. And so novels train us in empathy, and empathy in turn is the basis of morality, and that's why we need to hold on to art, and in particular this art form, which I love. I can tell. <laughs> uh, when you are uh, crafting this book, this has a lot of great, um, you know, one of the aspects of crime fiction are the, are the details in the book in terms of, you know, the different things you tell us about the judicial process. And this gives us the, the prosecutor's eye view, but it flips it because he's now all of a sudden finds himself uh, the defense. And, and there's a great line in here, a liberal is a conservative who's been indicted. <laughs> <laughs> I think. You, always, you always hear that line about a, a conservative as a liberal who's been mugged. So this is the flip side of the coin, isn't it? Yeah. Now, uh, as as you were, uh, you know, crafting this in terms of a, a crime novel, talk about the level of a detail that you wanted to include that puts us there, but doesn't turn this into, uh, you know, an information dump or just a techno fiction. It's a very hard balance. And, you know, normally the, the way these stories fall down, to me, is they're not authentic enough. You always have lawyers parading around in court asking improper questions. You have what to me is sort of the, the arch mistake that courtroom dramas always make, which is the defendant who confesses to the crime from the witness stand, which simply never happens. <laughs> but it happens all the time because storytellers need a way to close the story. They need a 100 percent certain conclusion to the story, and that's really the only way to deliver it. Um, well, you proved that to not be the case with this book. <laughs> yeah, well, it was important that, you know, one thing I wanted to capture was, you know, in a courtroom proceeding, a verdict is never certain. Even after you get a guilty, when you walk out of that courtroom as a prosecutor, you're not at 100% certainty. You may be at 99, or you may be at 51% certainty. And you know, there are wrongful convictions. I suspect that the error rate in criminal trials is much higher than people like to talk about. But that's a fact of life. And again, this is where Andy's role as a prosecutor and his role as a parent parallel one another. Because as parents, you know, our children get up and go to school and they're out of our sight all day. And we never quite know what they're up to. We don't know what's going on in their world. We're left to wonder. Uh, just as a prosecutor is. And so part of what Andy is trying to deal with is what every parent deals with. It's trying to know what, uh, you know, what is really going on in our children's world. And as these parents dig into Jacob's world, they find things that they're surprised by and terrified by and that they, uh, you know, that they really probably ought to have known earlier. But many parents, most parents, uh, won't because we all want to trust our children, we all want to respect their privacy, we want to be good parents. And sometimes that means keeping a very close eye on our children, and sometimes it means giving them a longer leash and letting them go and, and make their own mistakes. And that's kind of a balance that every, uh, every parent wants to, uh, wants to make. One of the things that informs this novel, and I think informs novels now in the 21st century, crime novels in particular, is the presence of the internet and the way that that has changed our lives and the way that has changed the way we interact with one another. 
and that's particularly important in this book uh, with regards to Facebook and internet chat rooms and the fact that you know when we were when you and I and stuff were going to school you know they'd say be careful that's going to go on your permanent record and we all knew there was no permanent record now actually <laughs> unfortunately there really is a permanent record and that's uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything else it's true i've always i'm always surprised that the internet and social media in particular aren't more prominent don't play a more prominent role in novels relative to how big a role they play in people's lives they just don't seem to be in novels quite as much. I think novelists don't really know how to grapple with this new presence in our lives, and they don't want to hitch their novels to a technology that is morphing and changing so quickly that by the time your own book is published, it may seem anachronistic. Uh, <laughs> but to me, I feel like you can't describe modern teenagers' lives without including things like Facebook and Twitter. Um, Facebook in particular, during, even over the course of writing this novel, the, the look of a Facebook cha page changed so much uh, that it became difficult to capture it. Uh, also, Facebook has accelerated so much in its growth. Now it's an ordinary uh, part of our lives, and you know our aunts and uncles and our grandmothers are on Facebook. That wasn't true in 2007 when the book takes place. And so one thing that had to be made clear in this case was it was very possible in 2007 for Jacob Barber to be saying troubling things on Facebook that his parents wouldn't know about. Now I think its parents are a little more hip to it. They're a little more aware that they need to know what their children are up to. However, children will probably move on to whatever the next social network is where, they're, where their parents won't be eavesdropping. Well, that's one of the things. You do do a good job in this novel of fixing this novel in time and making it to as much as, as it can be. It's a historical novel and it captures the like day before yesterday in yeah. history. Now, one of the things about the day before yesterday in history, and this is a, related to technology, is uh, the increasing intrusion of science into the courtroom. And it's, it's right now, there's a lot of people, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking with regards to people who want to uh, think that we can just solve this all, we hook everybody up to an MRI and figure out what they're, what they're doing. But that's not quite the case. So talk a little bit about the, the um, importance of uh, uh, forensic uh, neuroscience. And it, it only hinges slightly in this book, but I think it's yeah. going to become more and more important. Yeah, well, it's funny because in this book, you know, I didn't, I think one thing that, that does not interest me in the latest wave of crime stories is this obsession with forensics on mm -hmm. shows like CSI, uh, where, you know, you have the the detective is a guy who's wearing rubber gloves and he's going around with tweezers and he's saying, aha, a hair follicle, you know? <laughs> and that's the big dramatic moment. I feel like that that actually underplays the true power of crime stories, which is that they're about people, they're about mm -hmm. emotions, they're about the richness of human experience and when we read these crime stories as we do over and over and over again and this is you know really the dominant genre of story in our culture right now and we've been reading crime stories for a thousand years what I wanted to get at is you know these stories are about people and they're about what uh, what is behind the uh, the crime and so I didn't want to get too caught up in the science of it but what's interesting is we're at a, a 
a really novel moment in the development of forensics in criminal law, and that is the use of DNA. And the way DNA has been used up till now has been solely for identification. And that's the way it came up in the OJ case, and that's the way it's, it's used routinely now, and that has utterly transformed the way criminal cases are tried. Now, one thing that's interesting, though, when you bring up OJ, when in the OJ case, it was used to cast doubt on that. Now, years of scientific uh, verification have made that a reality. So we just, what was doubtful and, and caused, you know, one verdict in OJ is now just taken for every day. And it's just, you know, it's a right. open and shut case. And that's, you mm -hmm. know, that's the way it works. At one point, fingerprints were considered a controversial kind of evidence, and it takes a long time for, for society to wrap its mind around a new scientific sort of evidence. And to some extent, the, the law purposely lags behind mm -hmm. science because it doesn't want to embrace some cutting-edge theory that won't prove out, and that can result in, in wrongful convictions. But what's interesting in this case is a more sophisticated use of DNA then simply identification is now coming online. And that is the use of DNA as evidence in the actual behavior of how criminals react. And the, the way it plays out in this story is particular genetic mutations along the DNA strand have been associated with aggressive behavior. Uh, the shorthand for for this sort of idea is a murder gene or a warrior gene. And the suggestion is there may be a genetic predisposition to violence that's inheritable from our parents. It's important to keep in mind what that means. This isn't the sort of genetic coding that uh, codes for blue eyes or red hair or left-handedness. When we talk about a predisposition to a certain behavior, we're always talking about a gene-environment interaction. And environment will always be the larger half of that. M many, many, many people will have this genetic mutation and will never be violent. Mm -hmm. However, what's interesting about it is crime stories and all sorts of stories have always been about nature versus nurture. We've always, to the extent that we read these stories to think about why humans behave as they do, We've always had a thumb on the scale for nurture, and that may be because we simply haven't had the tools up till now to look at the nature side of the equation. It's only in the last 10 years or so that we've mapped the human genome, and this science is coming on fast, and it's the first real window that we've had into physiological, biological reasons for why we do the things that we do. We may be hardwired to behave in certain ways. And of course, in, in a criminal court, that has enormous implications because the presumption of all criminal law is that you're responsible for your own conduct. And when you're not, when you're not completely in control of your behavior, either because you're schizophrenic or you're drunk or you're simply underage, then a lesser degree of culpability attaches to whatever crime you tend to commit. Well, if that's true, and we're going to start to hear evidence that a certain defendant was hardwired to behave violently or to behave in all kinds of different ways, then that undercuts the basic presumption of criminal law. And 
it's inevitable that this will come into the courtroom. It's simply too good a, a tool for lawyers. Uh, as a lawyer myself, if I could still fit into my old lawyer suits, I would be rushing into the courtroom to try and get this evidence in because it, it undercuts the, the entire thrust of, of the prosecution's case, which is you have to hold this guy responsible because he chose to do this thing. And this is kind of, yeah, it's the difference between uh, uh, if a car is broken, you don't put it in jail. <laughs> you fix it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And there's some, you know, there's some discussion in this book, you know, about the implications of that, not just for, for the law. There's a suggestion that, you know, we don't, we don't punish a leopard for his wildness. Mm-hmm. And if Jacob, Jacob Barber inherited wildness, then it's not it's not right to punish him for being what he is but if you think about the implications of this what does it mean to be told that you have this gene you know how should we as a society react to this new science should should pregnant women be told that their unborn child may have a predisposition to violence should school administrators be told that someone in the class has this genetic predisposition to violence, either so that they could give him the, the sort of environment that he needs to grow up healthy or to protect the other kids in the class. Certainly if the boy, you know, presented a health risk because he was, you know, carrying some sort of disease or had, you know, anything else, uh, parents would, of course, feel obligated to report it to the, to the school principal because there's no stigma that attaches to that. Here, of course, there is a stigma. And, of course, on the other side, you know, we're these discussions play out endlessly. That's why this is, it's a, it's a good book club book because it generates a lot of discussion. But of course, there's privacy concerns on the other side. And of course, there's all sorts of reasons not to presume that simply because somebody has this gene that they are a violent person. This book is really thought-provoking. One of the things I think that's uh, really effective too is the emotional arc in this book. It's pretty wrenching. And as, as you were mapping out your outlines um, for the plot, Talk about plotting for emotions, which seems kind of, you know, that's more difficult than just saying what's going to happen. It's important to to remember that in any story, uh, including crime stories, you only are, are going to feel the dramatic impact of the story to the extent that you care about these characters. You have to know them and you have to like them and feel invested in these characters in order to to put your own heart into it. You know, I want readers to feel the same heartbreak that this family feels. And in order for that to happen, you need to spend time with them outside the courtroom. Uh, You need to feel what it's like inside this family. And you need to understand that this isn't, you know, a monster from, from some other life. You know, this is a family that looks an awful lot like my readers' families. And I think that readers will see a lot that's familiar inside the barber household and and that's that's kind of the whole idea you know uh, in some ways there's a a a sort of king lear like arc here where you see a family that that has it together at the beginning and that in andy's case especially he is the master of his world he's an absolute expert trial lawyer with the respect of everyone in his profession and in his community and gradually that's all stripped away from him and and we follow that arc along with him and that's you know that is equally important to 
the courtroom drama and to the thriller aspect of the novel. One of the things about uh, crime stories is to see the same series of events played back from different points of view at different times with new understandings. And you have a lot of fun with that in this book. We get to kind of see things, you know, we get some some rewinds. And also, you have a lot of fun with the timeline in this book because we, uh, you're a master of misdirection. Well, I think any, <laughs> you know, I think any writer who is writing mystery or suspense really has a difficult challenge at this point, which is that we're very late in the life of the genre. There are so many crime stories out there. It's hard to fool audiences. You need to come up with something that they haven't seen before. You need to use their expectations and their expertise against them in some way, because the whole point of reading a mystery is to be surprised. It's to see something you've never seen before, and that gives you that sense of, of delight. And when you when you get to the end of the story and you feel, I didn't see that coming, and yet it feels fully justified. And so playing with perspective, playing with the timeline is, is part of that. It's simply building in complexity into the storytelling uh, at a level that, you know, maybe an ordinary thriller doesn't necessarily have. Um, you know, the other piece of that, of the sort of Rashomon aspect of this, where where Andy, the investigator, is hearing different perspectives on the same crime, is that that's true to the life of, of a police detective or a uh, assistant DA. You know, we're stuck with the, with the witness testimony and the various pieces of evidence that we get. We have all these windows onto the crime itself, but no lawyer and no cop was there to actually see the crime. And so you're constantly subjected to these various perspectives on it, and they don't always fit together. Uh, there are so many variables in the way witnesses perceive different things, the way they recall different things, and then the way they relate different things, that by the time the story gets to you, the pieces don't always fit together. You know, in a mystery novel, a traditional mystery novel, the Agatha Christie sort of courtroom, uh, uh, drawing room mystery, the jigsaw pieces always fit exactly into place. And so you're left with an immaculate sort of conclusion. It's a true solution. In real life, there's always missing pieces, and the pieces themselves don't fit together. You have to force them together a little bit. You have to press your thumb down on them to get that damn puzzle to fit. And that is true to the lived experience of, of any assistant DA or of any police detective. It's just a fact of life and you have to learn to live with it and that gets back to you know how much doubt are we willing to accept in our criminal justice system is a is a 90 degree level of certainty required before we can say the word guilty or will a 5149 sort of level of certainty be okay with us one of the things i think that is uh, striking about this book is the kind of the contrast uh, that the reader experiences uh, in terms of what's happening emotionally with our involvement in the character on the page and what's happening with our satisfaction of the story arc. And I think that's an, that's an interesting contrast to play off of because um, at different points in the narrative, we have a set of feelings about the characters. We like them or we don't like them or we're kind of up in the air as to where they are. And the, the story itself kind of weaves in and out 
uh, about that. And I think that uh, makes the book uh, very compelling. Yeah, and it's it's a piece that's that's missing from a lot of stories, honestly. You know, when you write what's what we generally consider to be suspenseful, the temptation is to compress a little too much. You want to, in a courtroom story, you want to only be in the courtroom. The idea is to leave out anything that could conceivably slow down the pace. Faster is always better. Uh, and I look at those stories and I think, you know, what do these people do after they leave the courthouse? What's it like when they sit down to dinner in their kitchen that night after watching this whole thing happen in, in the courtroom all day? I feel as though unless you follow these characters and and really see their lives as they're going through this story, it just is going to feel more two-dimensional, uh, more cardboard, and it's not going to have the sort of emotional resonance that I want readers to feel. And, and I think you do a great job of that. There's one, a chapter called 189 Days, and even in a, quote, speedy trial, there's going to be a long gap between the time you're hauled before the judge and embarrassed to heck in your whole social life goes to hell in a handbasket and the time anything happens. And yeah. I think that's an interesting observation. And to, to see the characters through that time gives this book a lot more depth and makes it the the character shadings and what unfolds seem more un, inevitable, I guess. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that balance between trying to be authentic, trying to be true to the facts of the criminal justice system and the needs of storytelling of trying to tell a suspenseful dramatic story obviously you have to compress a little bit a book can't move at the pace of an actual murder trial because that can take a year or more and there's long stretches of time where really nothing happens except the stress of living with the accusation so some compression is always necessary and it's a matter of line drawing of how much are you going to leave out and in my in my opinion, I feel as though the payoff for putting a little more in than we traditionally do in a suspense novel opens up so much more emotional richness. I, you know, I feel that there's enough, or at least it was my <laughs> ambition with this book, that there be enough of a portrait of this family that even people who never read suspense, who never read courtroom stories or, or crime stories or cop stories, you know, that mainstream readers who lead, read so-called literary fiction, whatever that means, that they could come to this book and find a rich enough experience in the prose and in the characters and in the story itself outside of the, the suspense element that they would feel that this is a completely satisfying reading experience. And that really has been the feedback that we've been getting. What, this book has really taken off only in the first week that it's been out it, uh, it published last Tuesday. It was on the BNN bestseller list by lunchtime that very first day, and it stayed there ever since. And it's the same with Amazon, same with the indies, and I recommend that all of your listeners support their local independent bookstore when they go buy this book. But, you know, the reason that people are responding as they have, the reason it's sort of transcended any particular genre audience, which is very siloed in our sort of marketing of books right now is that it works as more than just suspense. It works as a real story about this family. And I think, you know, kind of the irony of that is as you were explaining the story, the way the story works, is 
the reason it works outside the genre is because, in a sense, you treat the whole story in the same way that you would treat a courtroom narr a narrative in the courtroom. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, I think, it's interesting that it gets out of the courtroom. It get the story seems more out of the courtroom because, in a sense, you treat the story as if you were telling it in the courtroom. Right. Well, as you would in the courtroom, you're trying to figure out who these people really are. That's exactly what it, you know. When a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, when they stand up in front of that jury and they talk about the defendant, they're trying to convince the jury that this is what this person is. And that's exactly what a novelist does. I've been speaking with William Landay. His new novel is Defending Jacob. Thank you for joining me, William. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.